Hello, Health Investor. Welcome to another episode of the Health Investment Podcast. Today, you're going to hear from Danny Matrenga. Danny has been coaching clients both in person and online, writing and producing fitness content, and educating other coaches for over 10 years. He's the founder of Core Coaching Method, operates a strength and conditioning and physical therapy studio, and the host of the Dynamic Dialogue podcast. Danny has over 15 unique certifications and thousands of hours in the trenches, coaching people from all walks of life. In the episode, Danny discusses fitness myths, creatine, what he wishes everybody knew about cardio, daily steps, and strength training, and more. If you're liking this podcast, I'd be so grateful if you'd write a review and share it with a friend. Enjoy the episode. I'm Brooke Simonson, certified nutrition coach and your host of the Health Investment Podcast. If you're ready to look and feel your best without any confusion, frustration, or stress, you're in the right place. Each week, I interview experts and share no-nonsense, research-backed tips so that you can finally lose weight for good, eat healthy long-term, have the high energy you crave, and feel like a million bucks. I'm so happy you're here with me today. Don't forget to hit subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Hi, Danny. Thank you so much for joining me today on the Health Investment Podcast. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. We're going to share with everybody where to follow you. I'm a huge fan of your Instagram account. If, if somebody follows me, they've definitely seen me repost your stuff. And I would call you a straight shooter, but in a very kind way, if that yeah, makes sense. That's fair. Yeah. I mean, but you call it like it is. And especially with mindset stuff, nutrition, fitness, I mean, we're going to talk about a lot of it today, but really a wealth of information on your Instagram account. So I just want to say that right off the bat. So people are sure to follow you over there. Can you start off by telling us a bit about your background and what led you to become a fitness coach? Sure. Um, it's not dissimilar to many people's, you know, story of how they got into fitness. I would had an athletic background, played all the sports, realized the limitations of being short and moderately athletic and, you know, found my way to the weight room as a viable solution to enhancing my athletic capabilities. And, you know, not shortly thereafter, I started getting more attention from girls and realized, Hey, you know, like the aesthetic and performance changes that come from exercise are pretty remarkable. And, and, and during this time, I was still young. I was still a teenager. And my dad was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease pretty early. So, you know, while I was building my fitness and expanding what it was my body could do, I watched his body deteriorate very rapidly. And that kind of gave me this insight into the whole, you know, yes, there's a aesthetic and a performance side of exercise and nutrition, but there's also a longevity and you know, health expansion side of this, we can, we can live healthier, we can live longer, we can fight disease. If we understand like the basics of nutrition and training. And so that was a cue to me, like, 
you know, you can share this thing that you're interested in, not just with people who want to look better or perform better, but also with people who want to live longer and be healthier. Um, so, you know, that being kind of the only thing I was really interested in as I exited high school, I applied to a bunch of different kinesiology programs, ultimately settled on one, uh, trained as a personal trainer in a big box gym for the entirety of my undergrad. And then uh, when deciding between, you know, physical therapy, graduate school or entrepreneurship, I, uh, I'm like relatively petrified of, you know, taking on large amounts of debt. So I said, you know what, I'm going to pass on, um, you know, graduate school, although, you know, I'm sure that there's a lot to learn and I'm just going to continue to invest my time into content creation, into training, into, you know, seminars, into mentorships. And, you know, I've, I've trained one-on-one -on -one clients for 50 hours a week for a decade. <laughs> and I still am in the studio 30 to 35 hours a week. So that the background of how I got into it and what I do now still largely looks like showing up every day, uh, learning from my clients and what works for them, what doesn't work for them. And it's kind of a never ending journey, fitness as a career and fitness as a hobby. So it's, it's a nice, uh, it's a nice path for a young man to walk particularly because it requires discipline and focus and attention. And it's been good for me. So I I'm happy that I found it. It's pretty cool that you found your passion as a teenager. I feel like that's very rare. Yeah, I think you could say that. I mean, I don't know if it's my only passion. I mean, I'm passionate about it. I think that, you know, we we like to, as human beings, assume that we will have one passion for life and we're, you know, perpetually looking for it. But I think passions change. Fitness is certainly one of my passions. It's a, a passion that gives me the ability to have the greatest influence and probably make the biggest impact. And it's actually through fitness that I found other things that I enjoy. Um, and through my dedication to fitness and my own fitness that I've developed the skills required to be good at other things I've ultimately become passionate about. So yes, I, I do agree. And people have said this so many times to me, like you're so fortunate to have found your passion at such a young age, instead of like, you know, meandering along and trying a bunch of shit you hate. Um, but the truth is fitness has allowed me to make time for other things that I'm passionate about in a way that other career paths probably just can't. And, you know, for me, that's pretty cool. It's just, yeah. it's, it gives me a ton of balance, ton of flexibility, ton of relational capital. I get to meet amazing people who turn me on to other cool things. So, uh, I think it would be a pretty good career path for anybody who's athletically inclined and has remotely decent interpersonal skills. So I'm not, I wasn't taking a huge risk going all in on being a personal <laughs> trainer. I don't like to give myself too much credit. Um, but yeah, definitely something that uh, stumbling into has just benefited me greatly. I guess the reason I say that is because I was a meanderer. So sure. I was a teacher for 12 years, which was my passion at the time. But I think it's important, as you say, passions evolve and change. And I think that's something that our generation embraces more mm -hmm. than parents or grandparents. It was kind of like you enter a career and you stay in that career forever. Totally. But it's kind of cool that we can change or we, I think a lot of us think you can change at some point, which is, 
So maybe, who knows? Who knows where you'll be in 15 years, right? <laughs> That's right. I don't like to put any limitations. Uh, hopefully not prison. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so, that would so, be the one limitation. We got to avoid that. I'd be pretty happy. Then you're doing pretty well in life, right? Pretty yeah. Doing pretty well. You've worked with so many clients, as you just said. Yeah. What would you say are some of the most common mistakes a lot of your new clients are making? Oh, sure. I don't know if they're mistakes so much as it is they just don't know what they don't know. I think most people mm-hmm. are heavily influenced by uh, nutritional and uh, exercise-related fallacies, misinformation, and old wives' tales that just kind of are pervasive in culture. It might be women who are afraid of lifting weights or people who think a high protein diet is dangerous or, you know, people who think that, and I live in Sonoma County, so I'm rolling the dice saying this, but like a glass of wine a night is good for me. There are a lot of things that people believe that are just factually untrue and oftentimes get in the way of real progress. So, you know, it's not that these people come to me making a ton of mistakes. They just come to me with an operating system that has a bunch of programs on it that are either outdated or not working. And so my job is like, I need to update the software. I need to update the programs that you're running to be the latest, greatest evidence-based factual ways to improve your health and longevity. And, you know, thoughtfully, carefully, and respectfully, walk you through why a lot of what you do believe is either holding you back or flat out incorrect, which is challenging because a lot of people are where they're at because they believe things either about themselves or about getting in shape that aren't true. Mm-hmm. And so just most people come to me with a lot of relearning or unlearning that needs to get done. And that's, that's the most common thread I see. There's certainly themes, you know, that people believe I touched on them that are untrue, but most people just need to be put on a, on a good path and, and guided away from some beliefs that are not serving them and are most of the time not true. What are some of the kind of most prominent myths circulating social media currently, would you say? Uh, yeah. So I see like a big one being like, eat a carnivore diet, eat a high saturated fat diet, um, you know, eat nothing but meat. Vegetables have anti-nutrients and negative effects on your health. Uh, that's a complete garbage. Uh, I see a lot of people that are like, oh, seed oils are, you know, far and away the most dangerous thing and they're rotting your brain and that's why everybody's fat. Also complete garbage. Uh, you know, I see a lot of justification around alcohol consumption and the health benefits of alcohol consumption. Oh, one to two a day is good. That's garbage. Uh, these are pervasive. Like the, there, there's a variety of different mis- pieces of misinformation around training um, and exercise that are just not really rooted in the science. You know, a lot, a lot of women in particular will think that they need to train twice a day. Or that, you know, the best way to lose weight is to, you know, do a ton of cardio. And these are things that mechanistically I I just don't see to be true. Or scientifically, I'm like, that is totally not true. But because it's spicy, so to speak, it just travels like crazy um, throughout social media. I'd say nutrition is a lot worse 
uh, when it comes to just flat out BS that makes its way around. It's like borderline religious and ideological for some people. And just like politics, uh, you know, the, the farther to the fringe you are, left or right, uh, the louder these people tend to be, the more dogmatic they tend to be. And, you know, our media ecosystem, especially on social media, rewards that. So it can be really tricky because, you know, good training and good nutritional principles are oftentimes simple and boring and they don't isolate singular things as being the number one cause of all problems. So those are some things that jump out immediately as like stuff that I'm just seeing constantly on Twitter or on Instagram or wherever I'm at. I'm just like, why is this popping off? Like, why is this out there? This is so like you, like if you have four brain cells, you should be able to deduce that an all meat diet is ridiculous, but you know, here we are. And so it's, you know, being able to handle that with a little bit more class and dignity and be gentle and trying to reason with people instead of being like, Oh, I'm going to make this person feel like an idiot and they'll become entrenched even more in this potentially harmful belief is really hard. It's one of my challenges. So I guess one of the things I'm working on is just paying attention to when I see that and trying to understand why it is that these things are appealing and kind of create a message of my own that is simplified enough that maybe that eventually can get picked up and, and spread. I interviewed a dietitian in a prior episode named Kate Killian, if anybody wants to go back to it, but she is, I think she's dating. I don't know if they're married, but she's, her partner is a psychologist or something in psychology. And she once asked him why misinformation spreads and what he said, I found so fascinating. He said, essentially, if you can't remember the source of something and you hear it enough times, you just accept that this is something that everybody knows. Mm-hmm. And so like the seed oils one, you can't remember who said it or where they said it, but you've seen it so many times. You just accept it as this fact that everybody knows to be true. Mm-hmm. And then it's really hard to unwire that or unwind it because you just accept it as a fact. And I thought that was really interesting of kind of yeah. makes sense why a bunch of stuff spreads because people are just repeating things believing like, Oh, everybody knows this. Obviously this is just something to repeat. I think that's mostly true and wanting to believe that, Mm. you know, nutrition could be boiled down to one simple food additive that's causing all the problems. Like it would be nice if things were so tidy, Mm. you know, we, we, not to get political, but we do this with politics. Like all of the problems in this country are clearly a direct result of the chief executive. Whoever is president is responsible for inflation. They're responsible for everything that's going on geopolitical. Uh, people on the American political left and American political right do this. It, it is quite quite literally the person who is president is the cause of all the problems. We want to psychologically boil all of our problems down into one thing because it's tidier and easier mm-hmm. to fix. But Again, it's just not reality. It's just the operating system trying to make things that are complex simple. And that can be really helpful, but a lot of times it can bite you in the ass. (laughs) It's well said. Very true. I want to take a quick break from the episode to tell you about a company I've been impressed by for years. Thrive Market is an online shopping platform that offers thousands of products at 25 to 50% off retail prices. 
For just $60 a year, you get access to a wide variety of premium pantry staples, supplements, beauty products, and home goods at unbeatable prices. To put things in perspective, I save about $20 to $30 per shipment, which means my annual membership fee pays for itself after just two orders. My favorite part about Thrive Market is that for every paid membership, they donate a membership to a low-income family, veteran, or teacher. So not only do you save money on your purchases, but you also make healthy products accessible to everyone. To read my full Thrive Market review, steal my shopping list of over 150 items, and save additional money on your first order, visit thehealthinvestment.com slash Thrive Market, or just click through the link in the show notes. Now, back to the episode. Can you talk a little bit about creatine? I don't know that anybody on this podcast has ever spoken about it. And I know you have a post yeah, it was a long time ago or recently, but what is it? Mm-hmm. Who should take it? Why should they take it? Is it well-researched? Can you just kind of break down creatine? Sure, sure. So like uh, uh, creatine f- functionally is a nutritional supplement that people take to increase muscularity, performance, and recovery. Uh, your body makes it. It's a synthesized com- uh, kind of aggregate of a couple different amino acids. Ar- nobody's going to give a shit, but arginine and methionine are the big ones. And we, we use these scraps to build it in our own tissue. And some of it's in our brain, some of it's in our muscle tissue, most of it's in the muscle tissue. And uh, when you train a lot and you work out a lot, you can usually get away with having more. And typically, if you eat like a lot of fatty cold water fish and red meat, you're going to probably get enough. But going back to the discussion we had about meat, if you want to get enough creatine to optimize athletic performance and you're banking on getting it all from red meat, your red meat consumption might be high and the calories and saturated fat associated with that might not be worth the trade-off. So enter supplemental creatine, the easiest way to get more of this compound into your body that does not require eating tons of meat. And, you know, it is very well studied. It's probably the most studied nutritional supplement outside of like vitamin supplements uh, and maybe omega-3. As far as ergogenic aids or athletic enhancing agents, it's definitely the most well-researched outside of maybe caffeine and nicotine, which aren't necessarily researched for their ergogenic effects. They're just ergogenic and therefore have a huge body of literature supporting their use for maybe stimulation or obviously with nicotine, there's tons of research around nicotine when you're looking at cigarettes. But creatine has been studied for a very long time for increasing athletic performance, which is what you want to see. You want to see a high volume of research and then you want to see a specificity of research. So you get like two thumbs up right there. Lots of research, lots of research in different populations. And I won't make recommendations for any specific population, but if you see that a study has been shown to work safely and effectively in pregnant females, you should be like, okay, that's probably a pretty safe supplement. So when people start supplementing with creatine, they usually start with like two to five grams every single day. And there's a bunch of different types of creatine. None of them need to exist besides creatine monohydrate. Everything else that exists is purely exists as a result of making more money. Um, none of the designer, fancy, sexy, cool, unique, new forms of creatine have been proven to be better than what's already out there. So you can 
avoid all the spin and all the fluff and all the BS. Creatine monohydrate is the most studied form and it's still the best form. And two to five grams taken daily for anybody who wants to improve their physique, who wants to improve their blood sugar regulation, who wants to improve their cognitive function, who wants to improve different levels of different lipids. So this could be bringing HDL up and LDL down. Creatine has been shown to do or to be associated with all of these things. So um, when I look at the you know, American population, you got about 340 million people and about 225 million of them are overweight and about half of those people are obese. Um, you know, a supplement that has the capability to increase muscle tissue, to positively affect blood sugar, to positively affect blood lipids, and to be, you know, a very, very promising and emergent compound for cognition I'm all over it because I look at like the four central problems of American health as being a lack of muscle tissue, dysregulated blood lipids. That's why the number one drug prescribed in America is statins, dysregulated blood sugar. That's why in like 2030, the number one cause of death will probably be metabolic syndrome, diabetes, heart disease, all these things. Dysregulated blood sugar is a huge driver of all these problems. And then uh, a new and emergent and unfortunately terrible thing is we're seeing diseases like Parkinson's, dementia, Alzheimer's, par uh, various forms of cognitive decline that, you know, wreck quality of life for anybody who's fortunate enough to live <laughs> and not die because of their terrible blood lipids or their horribly dysregulated blood sugar. And creatine is, is like the most emerging, exciting compound for brain health. So, you know, super well studied, super cheap, <laughs> not expensive to supplement with daily, uh, you know, two grams a day for small women, five grams a day for, you know, average size adults is like typically where I would say to start. I do think like a lot of petite women will go on the five gram a day dose and they'll notice some like intestinal discomfort because there's water that oftentimes when you supplement with creatine, more water gets pulled in with it. So, you know, a full size dose and a fun size person might create some discomfort, but Literally like 90% of people listening are probably going to be fine with a five gram a day dose just taken prophylactically to increase performance, increase creatine saturation stores, uh, increase recovery, hydration, and, you know, really reduce your risk of a lot of issues. Now, populations that get studied are usually active populations. So, you know, you'll get way less out of creatine if you take it and sit on your ass, but you'll get quite a bit out of it if you take it in, you know, exercise. That's what I was going to ask, because I usually see trainers posting about it in conjunction with the discussion of strength training, for example. Mm -hmm. Sure, sure. So in my mind, it's always been you take this if you're strength training, but yeah. the way you're making it sound is even if you're at, I mean, let's say somebody is working on a step school, they haven't started strength training yet. Yeah. And they're looking to improve those areas you mentioned, like it could even be a viable option for that. Yeah. Person. I mean, I'll, I'll give you it. My dad has Parkinson's disease. He gets exactly like zero steps a day. <laughs> He's wheelchair bound, still a great candidate for creatine because there's a positive link between creatine supplementation and mitigation of depression, Parkinson's symptoms, right? And I'm, you just weigh out the risk reward. Yes, this will give you even more if you're athletic. That's why for athletes, it's a no brainer. But even for non-athletic general population adults, there is a huge, huge uh, movement 
for, you know, creatine supplementation because it's been shown and is currently being shown to do more and more for more than just getting stronger and performing better. So, you know, that's probably like the hill I'm going to die on. I'll have to like, I'll have to retreat to the mountains and never return. If like we find out like five years from now that like creatine is associated with all these problems. Um, But I'm pretty sure that's not going to happen. Right. In a blog post on your website, you said volume eating is an underrated fat loss tool. And Mm -hmm. I would love if you could talk more about that. Sure. So like food volume is a matrix of how many calories are in the food relative to what it weighs in grams. And so like a great example of this would be like watermelon versus uh, watermelon candy. So like a very popular watermelon candy is like the Sour Patch Kid uh, or Sour Patch brand watermelon candy. And I think like six of those tiny little candies has about 140 calories and you can eat almost a pound of watermelon and and get about 140 calories so like you'll visually have about a palm full of these candies have the caloric equivalent of a large bowl of fruit and so the high volume choice in that scenario would be which of the two watermelon flavored items yields the greatest amount of food. And most people opt for tasty shit, um, irrespective of the actual volume. And the problem with that is you're going to miss out on uh, not like a lot of high volume foods are also very nutrient dense, uh, but you're going to miss out on feeling full and feeling satiated. If you opt for low volume, energy dense foods, these are most processed foods, you know, like a potato, a bag of potato chips has like eight potatoes in it, something absurd like that. And you could not sit down and eat eight potatoes if I put a gun to your head. But the minute you slice them, fry them and cover them with salt, they digest easier. You know, the actual weight of the product, uh, you know, is theoretically the same. It's still eight potatoes. Um, but the energy density is much greater. So eight potatoes in a bag of potato chips has, you know, 1200 calories, eight potatoes boiled is like, you know, 450. One of them's going to leave you full. Uh, one of them had, they have equivalent volume, arguably. So there's also the energy density side of things. So for me, it's like, try to make 80% of your diet, high volume energy, uh, moderate nutrient dense foods, and be mindful of energy or calorie dense, low nutrition foods. Try to include less of those in your diet and you'll probably look better, move better, feel better. Mm, That's a great, great explanation. Next up, (laughs) I just feel like I want to pick your brain. Yeah, yeah. You can shoot whatever you want. (laughs) Well, you're very good at explaining these things. And I think uh, there's another whole world out there talking about reverse dieting mm-hmm. and then people get very confused about this sure. term and what it means and who should do it and when you should do it and how to do it properly. Sure. What do you say about that? I don't believe in reverse dieting. Uh, if I'm being straight, I've taken a more reflective look at reverse dieting and I used to practice reverse dieting with my clients. And and now to me, reverse dieting just means I've discussed with the client 
that we're going to be returning to a higher caloric intake and determined psychologically whether or not they'd prefer to do that quickly or whether or not they'd prefer to do that slowly. When they'd prefer to do that slowly, it's usually just because there's fear and trepidation around eating more food. And I'm totally cool with that. So if we go slower, I had a client, we had a super successful cut. She wanted to add calories back in more slowly. I said, that's fine. I'm not going to call it a reverse diet. Uh, but that's in essence a reverse diet. Uh, for other clients, it's like, oh, I feel like shit. I'd like to go back to my maintenance right away. And so I'm like, okay, let's do that. And after years of practicing like reverse dieting, and I thought I was like just this genius because, oh, I'm giving them more calories and they're actually losing weight on my reverse diet. And it was really just like I terrified them by having them eat 200 more calories. So they started tracking really hard again. And like, <laughs> then all of a sudden, they were not exposed to all these additional calories. They were just totally spaced out on. And so after reflecting on this and after studying metabolism, which is completely different than studying nutrition, by the way, metabolism is more biological and that it does require a pretty robust understanding of chemistry and physiology. So I'm not saying go pick up a metabolism textbook, but what I am saying is, a reverse dieting is a nutritional tactic that I feel like is misaligned with what I've come to learn about metabolism. And in, in reflecting, I realized reverse dieting was a tactic that exploded when um, nutrition business coaching exploded because it's really easy to sell people more fucking shit and more time working with you when you uh, let them think that they need to eat more and make the diet take longer in order to lose weight. When the truth is like, based on the research we have about metabolism, almost nobody's metabolism is so fucked up that they can't lose fat on mm -hmm. like 1200, 1300, 1400, 1500 calories. They just suck at counting. And so a good coach is going to say like, no, you're just dog shit at counting. You're terrible at diligently counting your macros and like adding, f Oh, going up for, to maintenance for a little while, like, Oh, and doing it slow. That's, that's going to be the trick. No, it's not like diet breaks work planned hedonic deviation and enjoying food works, but they work psychologically. They don't work because they reset metabolism. So while I believe slow truncated reintroduction of calories after a diet can be very beneficial psychologically, I scoff at the notion that we can infinitely raise someone's metabolic capacity by slowly adding in calories or that people need to reduce. Oh, they, Oh, I've been eating 1300 calories forever. I need, I, you know, like, and I just can't lose fat anymore. It's like, okay, well, if you are truly suffering what we know in the research to be that degree of metabolic maladaptation, I need to get you back to maintenance very rapidly because your thyroid's going to get shot. You're going to start losing hair. Your joints are going to obliterate to shit. And, and like, if none of those things are happening, I might assume that maybe you're not actually eating 1200 calories because <laughs> it's like, Oh, I've been eating 1200 calories. I can't lose fat. And then coaches who do certifications or who learn about this from other coaches, it's like, Oh, that's when you raise the red flag and start a six week reverse diet and lock them in for a couple more months. It's like, it, it is so much more likely that they suck at counting that we need to have that conversation first. 
before we nocebo this person into believing they have metabolic maladaptation. And, you know, it's like, all I can say is this. Nobody in Central Africa needs to fucking reverse diet. Because when you starve, you get really lean. So it, it, starving yourself works everywhere but America, apparently. And so that's, that's kind of what led me to take a deeper look at metabolism. And it's not to say that you shouldn't take care of people and just you don't want to throw people into prolonged deficits. Like be in a deficit, take a break. Be in a deficit, take a break. There is really no need to slowly add them in, the calories that is, in my humble opinion. I could be completely wrong about this. I have heard so many people make like really strong claims and I respect every coach's uh, art of coaching. It's just something I've turned my back on because I realized it wasn't serving people nearly as much as having an honest conversation about tracking. Outside of hosting this podcast, I work as a nutrition coach specializing in evidence-based sustainable weight loss. If you're ready to stop yo-yo dieting and start living a healthy, active lifestyle you're proud of, I'd love to work with you in one of my programs. Unlike restrictive, one-size-fits-all diets that only provide short-term results, I help you adopt science-backed nutrition and lifestyle habits that work for your unique likes, dislikes, and time constraints so you can lose weight permanently, have high energy throughout the day, feel completely in control of cravings, and stay consistent long-term. To learn more, visit thehealthinvestment.com or follow me on Instagram and TikTok at The Health Investment. No, I, I agree with you. Uh, you mentioned you changed your mind about that. So you used to kind of believe that. I what used to believe a lot of dumb shit. <laughs> well, I was going to say, what else have you changed your mind about over the years that comes to mind? Sure. Yeah. I used to take BCAAs. So I, I, I used to, t- I used to think that was a good idea. That was pretty stupid. Um, I used to like hate on CrossFit and like Zumba and all this stuff. And then I'm like, you're such a dumbass. Like literally nobody in this country moves. Why would you degrade any form of exercise? Like you're just, a, you're being a puritanical asshole. Like just encourage everything, no matter what the fuck it is, because everybody needs kudos. Everybody needs a high five and any exercise, even if it's fucking slamming your head at the wall, is probably better than doing nothing. And I'm sorry, I've just come and become an unhinged curse word launching maniac. Uh, I started strong. I told myself I'd hold it together. Now it's like Richard Pryor. Now I've really set you off. Yeah. Um, I've changed my mind about a lot and it's informed my coaching because I've been the victim of some of this misinformation too. Um, You know, I I would say that the big things I've changed my mind on are, you know, the number of supplements that people need to take. I think it's much smaller than than what I used to believe. I think it's better to have quality supplements, maybe five to 10 than it is to have like a cabinet full of 50 that may or may not do anything. I no longer make fun of or ridicule any type of exercise. I think I want it to be as encouraging as I possibly can. Um, I don't look at other coaches as my competition. There's, like I said, 250, probably million Americans who need some type of exercise and nutrition support. There's literally not enough people to deliver that. So there's no sense whatsoever in being adversarial 
and looking at other people as competition. It's just like another person who's fighting the same fight. Um, those, those are big ones. Uh, fortunately for me, like I've just, I've, I've had the ability as a personal trainer and as a, you know, having a science education to have the toolbox to maybe not make some of the same mistakes, um, that many people do, but I'm certainly not perfect. What do you wish everyone knew about cardio? Uh, that you should do it and that more almost half of the men that you know in your life right now are going to die of cardiovascular disease and one of the best ways to not die of cardiovascular disease is to do cardio one of the best ways to not be fat is to do cardio one of the best ways to have more energy is to do cardio and i hate cardio i know it sucks but dying being lethargic and having poor vascular health is worse than doing cardio so I think people should do more cardio and I feel similarly about reverse dieting or or I feel similarly about the people who champion reverse dieting as I do the people who say cardio is going to kill all of your muscle. There's a lot of people in the fitness space who say that and that's like absolute bullshit. There's a ton of research on the interference effect. You have to do a ton of cardio to see negative uh, effects on anaerobic fitness and muscle mass. And it's like always dudes who've never done any fucking cardio ever who are just lifters. They're not athletic whatsoever. And I'm like, do you not watch professional sports? Like these dudes are bigger than you, stronger than you, more athletic than you and have aerobic fitness. Like if you're staying away from cardio for your gains, bro, you're just going to die early and feel like a a moron. So do the damn cardio. Like you literally can get away with like 150 minutes a week of like gently strolling on a bike. That's like, 20 minutes a day. Are you kidding me? Get or or like get eight to ten thousand steps. Holy shit. Like it's the number one cause of death in men. And it has been forever. Cardiovascular. Well, not forever. <laughs> I mean, a long time ago, it used to be like war and accidentally getting yeah. impaled by a mammoth. But that is the the num the largest subset of people who don't do cardio are the people and the men who are gonna die from not doing cardio. So the most misunderstood thing about it is it's pretty much only good for you and not going to affect you negatively. And yes, you might not like it just like you probably don't like brushing your teeth or putting on a seatbelt, but you do it because not doing it is a death sentence. Like that's how I feel about cardio. I hate it, but I still do it. What do you wish everybody knew about daily steps or just getting more daily movement? Yeah, you know, 200,000 years as a species and we moved 15,000 plus steps for 99% of that 200,000 years, 99.9% of that 200,000 years. And for the last 0.1% of our existence as a species, we've seen that number come down. I would argue that humans evolved to walk. That's why we're bipedal, unlike many of the other apes who are bipedal, but do not do nearly as much walking because they're also like hybrid quadrupeds, you know, they can do a little bit of both. Uh, We evolved to walk, we evolved to run, we evolved to sprint, we evolved to use bipedal gait. And not doing that is a great way to end up fat, sick, and dealing with a ton of pain. So I recommend walking like nobody else. I think it's so, so helpful to just slowly accrue steps. Yeah. 
Uh, well, then we've done cardio and steps. So what do you wish everybody knew about strength training? That you're way more likely to get hurt not lifting than you are lifting. It's safe as fuck. I do it with people every day, six to eight hours a day. None of my clients have perfect form. Almost every single one of them is striving for perfect form, but very few of them have perfect form across all exercises. Some of them have like a perfect squat or a beautiful press or whatever, right? But almost none of them have perfect form, yet none of them ever get hurt in their 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s. And there remains this pervasive line of thinking that lifting weights is dangerous. When in fact, I think not lifting weights is actually really dangerous. So if you don't want to be hurt all the time, if you want to like stub your toe and not have it break, if you want to fall over and, you know, miraculously bounce up like, holy shit, I don't know how I didn't get injured. If you want to look good naked, if you want to have better performance in the bedroom, like lifting weights will check all those boxes. It is the perfect, perfect adjunct for a step goal and getting some cardio. Those three things and getting some sleep are the big rocks of health. One of the final questions I ask each of my guests is in your opinion, what does it mean to make the health investment? So I invest quite a bit of my income. I'm interested in finance. And if you study finance, you'll realize that it's really time that makes people super wealthy. And it's not finding that one unicorn investment. There are a lot of people who've gotten uber wealthy doing that, venture capitalists, uh, people who make the right bet, early seed stage investors, sure. But most people get wealthy by buying a home and paying the mortgage for 30 years, by investing in a 401k, starting a Roth, by making these small investments and, and allowing time and the magic of compounding to do the work. I feel like fitness is the same thing. If you can make mostly small, good decisions most of the time and not blow it over the course of your life, then you will be rewarded with a longer, more healthful life. Um, but if you don't start early, there truly is such a thing as too little, too late. And that's not to dissuade anybody from getting into the game, but once you've got diabetes, or once you've got art coronary artery disease, or once you're obese, or once you've had multiple joint replacements or surgeries, there's no denying that beginning a health journey is harder and there are more barriers. Um, so like I would tell any young person, you know, find whatever amount of money you can invest, no matter how small and make an effort to do that regularly. I would say the same thing to anybody who's looking to live healthier, find whatever level of time you can allocate, allocate it fiercely and judiciously for as long as you possibly can cross your fingers and it'll probably work out. There are so many great analogies with finance and health. It's just, they're abundant. I feel it's, I have, so glad uh, you brought that up. I'm of the opinion that America is a nation of obese people and people riddled with cons, uh, consumer debt for the same exact reasons. Mm -hmm. It's just two different forms of the same trade-off. Where can listeners follow and find you? Instagram's pretty good. Uh, Danny Matranga over there, YouTube. I've got a great exercise library podcast, dynamic dialogue podcast, um, more cut and dry, uh, to the point 
if this is if somehow you found this uh enjoyable and you <laughs> don't mind my direct delivery then you will definitely like the podcast um but yeah that's it you just like all i just go to instagram and if if you don't like that then we have no i have nothing for you (laughs) (laughs) well that's cool though that you have a library of training stuff on youtube yeah i have like 250 minute long exercise tutorial videos because i feel like so I always, I worked at a gym forever and I would see people on YouTube Googling exercises. How do yeah, I, yeah. how do I do this? And so there's tons of those and just trying to make small, meaningful contributions. You know, I'm, I'm only on this rock hurtling through outer space for a couple more decades. And I want to try to get all these other people on this rock fit before, mm-hmm. you know, I'm gone. Yeah. Well, awesome. Well, I'll follow you. I follow you on Instagram as I saw already, but I'm going to check out your YouTube and I didn't know you had a podcast actually. So yeah, yeah, I do. I do a terrible job of plugging my podcast, but we're over a million downloads and strong and, um, you know, another way to, I don't feel like you talk about that much on your Instagram page. (sighs) That social media has. Yeah, but I I don't because I feel like social media has a lot of 20 year old dude bros who are hyping their Mm. podcast and I battle internally every day with the fact that, uh, you know, I have wisdom from lived experience that is substantially greater than what many people would anticipate for a 28 year old. But I want to be gracious in letting people know if you'd like to hear me talk for 30 to 60 minutes unabridged it's 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 there but there's part of me that's like don't be pretentious but such as such as life well i'm sure that people are gonna head over there and hear what you have to say but thank you so much for giving us your time on this podcast i learned a lot i appreciate your frank nature and i look forward to staying connected off air thank you very much Well, that's all for today. Thanks again for joining me here on the Health Investment Podcast. I'm so grateful for each and every one of my listeners. On your way out, remember to hit subscribe so that you never miss an episode. See you next week. All content in this podcast was created for general informational purposes only by a non-physician. None of the content should serve as a substitute for professional medical advice, treatment, or diagnosis. Always consult a qualified health provider with any questions regarding a medical condition and before making changes to your diet, lifestyle, and or exercise programs. Do not disregard any professional medical advice you have received or postpone seeking such advice because of something you heard on this podcast.